Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to September's edition of Recharge, the podcast by Battery Materials Review. Due to travel commitments, and I haven't said that too many times over the past 18 months, we don't have an interview this month. So we'll go right into the monthly recap with Cormac Olera, MD of Electrials Energy. Cormac, welcome to Recharge. Thank you, Matthew. Delighted to join you on our monthly uh, discussion. Monthly jaunt through the world of battery materials yeah. and batteries, I guess. So what's going on in China this month? A lot of these semi-annual reports came out uh, for a lot of the Chinese EV battery makers, chemical suppliers. So some really interesting numbers from uh, Chinese government agencies. Uh, so far, EV production is up to uh, 1.5 million NEVs, not, not pure EVs, but NEVs, uh, yeah. January to July. That encompasses you know, everything from hybrids to electric road sweepers. So <laughs> it's still pretty impressive numbers. And battery production, almost at 100 gigawatts, for, uh, and that's for EV battery production. So significant to jump on last year even. And so we'll uh, expect and I noticed that our yeah. Wuling Mini still got 13% market share, absolutely whopping the competition this half year. Yeah, and they haven't changed the car at all in, uh, basically since they announced, or uh, since they released it. Didn't go to the recent Chengdu uh, Motor Show because they they don't have a new car, but still, you know, they're onto something. They haven't upgraded. They haven't done anything with electronics and they're still top selling car. So I think it's fascinating. And I think it has a lot of implications for the rest of the world as well, that this car, which is, you know, the only thing going for it is it's cheap. It doesn't have enormous range. It's what, 150 miles range, maybe 200 miles range in, in real world. Kilometers and more, I'd say. Yeah. So it's you know it's a very low range, but it's cheap and it's the best selling car and it's it's a mass market car in China, and I think that's particularly interesting when you bear in mind there are press reports that Tesla are going to start selling the LFP version of the Model Three in North America, particularly given that we've heard that it's range, 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 which. Uh, yeah which everybody's focusing on for the last couple of years, when in fact now it looks like being price, price, price. Yeah, well, at the end of the day, uh, we all want better things, but we're limited by price, aren't we? So yeah, uh, yeah. as the market matures and more people come into it, first thing we're going to look at is at the uh, sticker, price sticker. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that as the market becomes more and more mature, people aren't going to be sitting there worrying about whether they're £50,000 EV can can do 350 or 400 miles. They'll be worrying about whether they can afford an EV. And if that's the case, then as long as it gets them to and from work and they can recharge it overnight or whatever, that's what they're focusing on. So I think it's, it's a sign of the market maturing and focusing more on price rather than on range. Yeah, yeah. Recently, the MII, MIIT in China, which is the Motor Information Bureau, which releases data on forthcoming uh, vehicles that are accepted that will be accepted for the roads in china there's out of the 347 cars released there was over 20 that were mini evs and so that's you know almost double on the, the the last list so the interest is growing and they all look quite similar it's the problem they all you couldn't really tell yeah. the difference because there's not much you can change and 
these uh, small platform cars to differentiate. They're all boxy. The differentiating factor in a number of these cars is whether they're one or two door. Yeah. So quite similar to what Japan done a number of years ago when they, uh, and it's been quite successful, it stepped into the mini car arena and the mini vans, mini cars, smaller cars, I should say, smaller cars, mm -hmm. not uh, I think it's going to be interesting. I mean, obviously, we had the, the Dacia Spring model yeah. launched in, in Europe this year, and uh, it'd be interesting to see how that goes. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm thinking... Is that an LFP platform, you know? I don't believe so. I'm not sure, but I, I, I don't believe so. Obviously, this is a battery no supply. research needed on that one, but... Yeah, um, yeah. Because um, that was the, that's the whole point of that market is uh, yeah. more or less LFP, yeah. Yeah. So I think it is going to be very interesting to see whether um, we see more sort of smaller, affordable EVs being released in the European market. I think you, realistically that is the future. You know, I did a, a big study on um, on EV ownership models yeah. for a blog recently, and uh, you know, it comes out very strongly that ownership models are going to have to change. If we're going to hit mass market in terms of EVs, I mean, buying your car outright, buying on credit is just not viable if your EV costs twice what your what your ICE costs. So, yeah, you, yeah. you, you can find, um, you know, more more detail on that on my on a blog on my website or on LinkedIn. But uh, well, if you look at the Tesla's model, the cars have been shrinking, right? They went from yeah. S to the X, which is quite large. To the three, to the wide, they are shrinking from the uh, the early models. So, yeah. so that's anything to go by. But you got, you know, you have two, a few options. You could have smaller battery pack, large car, or large car, large battery pack, depending on size of the vehicle. You can have a large car with smaller battery pack, medium range that might be able to accommodate a family of four. Who knows? But mini EVs wouldn't be summarized as a family care for sure i mean I, I obviously cars have increased massively in size over the last 10 or 15 years yeah so maybe we'll get a little bit of a pushback now obviously the bigger car you have the bigger the battery pack you need to have generally because the weight of the car requires more power from your battery to get it to move and everything so yeah. if you can cut down on the size of the car, obviously that does help with the efficacy of the battery pack. Um, but it's a fascinating area, and I think you know well worth keeping a close eye on going forward. Tesla lead the industry, not until uh, Tesla release uh, their version of a Wulong Mini EV will we, we see the other automakers go to it. I'm sure. Okay. I wouldn't be surprised they'll have something coming out. <laughs> so, uh, what else is going on in China this month? I, I sort of interrupted you in your prime. Yeah. Uh, well, no, no, that's fine. Um, well, CATL have uh, announced a massive raise of fifty, almost fifty-nine billion RMB to add an additional one hundred and seventy gigawatts of power, uh, sorry, capacity, battery production capacity. Which the amount of capacity they've announced in the last three years is over five hundred gigawatt hours. With you know, yeah. uh, including this, so. They are on their way and determined to maintain their spot as number one battery producer. Um, so so I, I was quite interested by the releases that we saw around the battery capacity, which was almost, it's almost, it's all of it in China, isn't it? Which for me is very interesting because it's a big, big old world out there. And for them to only be building battery capacity in China suggests that they could be giving up in other markets. Oh, CATL, well, they're in Germany as well. 
Um, they are in Germany, but they're yeah. not. They haven't announced any additional capacity in Germany or elsewhere. All of their expansions are in China. Well, originally they were a China-centric uh, battery manufacturer, right? And the only in the last eighteen months got you know contracts with uh, Tesla and uh, VW and some of the other international partners and uh, Daimler as well. It's quite expensive. It's much more expensive to build a similar uh, factory in Europe. So this is the problem they're having is uh, they can build the same factory in China for half the price, but it looks like in a short number of years, 2027, that they might not be able to sell Chinese batteries in Europe. That's the key thing. And you've got to assume that the US is going to enact a similar legislation to that as well. So my question is really, yeah, sure, the Chinese market is a big market, but surely it makes sense from a strategic point of view for them to be building outside China as well as within China. They don't really have much competition, globally speaking, right now, right? It's just them, LG Chem, Panasonic, and that's it on a massive scale. I mean, maybe their people will be, uh, companies will be, OEMs will be forced to buy off them. There's nobody else who can supply quantity, quality at that rate. In the, it, it, there's nothing at that level, at least in the European level, that's going to be in the next five years, even probably won't yeah. be up to 100 gigawatt hours. Yeah. Some pretty interesting moves in the raw material side, particularly in the midstream side this month with a number of Chinese companies that are in other raw materials, say, coming into battery raw materials. So I'm thinking of companies like Lohman Billions. I'm thinking of Hainan Mining, both moving in towards battery raw materials, maybe some understanding in China that this is an, a key area for development going forward. Yeah, the Hainan one is quite quite interesting. You know, Hainan is marketed as China's Hawaii. It's a tourist yeah. destination, tropical island just uh, in South China, right next to Vietnam. They have some, um, to encourage industry, they have a, a, a quite a attractive tax program, I believe, there. And China also wants to spread the EV industry throughout China, so every province benefits so yeah. yeah hainan has as far as i know doesn't have a very strong mining history although this is going to be a conversion plant i believe right to for lithium yeah. hydroxide yeah which is interesting in itself because the market's been leaning heavily towards uh, lfp in the last um six months or more and uh, china has announced a lot of hydroxide production has been uh, tai li which is in yibin province has announced uh, twenty five thousand kilotons of um, per annum of uh, LIOH as well. Um, so there's many, there's been obviously few carbonate announcements like Guaxan has, or Goishan, sorry, has the 100,000 tons of lithium carbonate they produce, but they're a well-known LFP battery manufacturer. So it's interesting that they will be producing it down there. But um, Yeah. Just with regards to LFP, because it's quite interesting. We were talking earlier before we came on air about the raw material supply chain for LFP and um, definitely starting to see it starting to creak here. I mean, we've obviously talked about lithium before. There's a vinyl carbonate, which I think is a key component of LFP batteries. That's in shortage. Prices have gone up by over 100% this year. Phosphorus, yeah. yellow phosphorus, that's in shortage because of power curtailments in a number of provinces. Even the LFP supply chain seems to be creaking. And I'm just wondering how long it'll be before cell makers, cathode makers, OEMs realize 
how creaky the supply chain genuinely is for these lithium-ion batteries. Yeah, what, what seems to be buckling at the moment is the electrolyte components. Uh, finally, carbonated, as you mentioned there, it's made its way onto my chemical list this month. It's uh, 350,000 RMB per ton, which is not the most expensive battery material. There's a uh, lithium hexafluorophosphate, which is over 400,000 uh, RMB per ton. But the electrolyte uh, components are very expensive, not something that you can add new capacity anytime soon. It's very specialized and expensive to get into. As you mentioned, this is component are part of the chain that people haven't been discussing. And it's looking like the electrolyte components are the weakest part. Thus, yeah. uh, well, the, the weakest part of a, of a weak supply chain. I mean, uh, I won't get on my soapbox about lithium. Oh, do. Yeah. <laughs> it is concerning that uh, so many parts of the chain are starting to fall over and we're only really a year into the strong demand environment and actually with four, five, ten years of very, very rapid demand growth to go. It's a real concern that we're starting to see, you know, these issues so early on. Yeah, I have here my uh, my monthly news headline said that the you know, 18 billion uh, investment has been announced in the lithium iron phosphate production, including for just precursors and raw materials. So this is quite a, a large investment announced by ch- all Chinese companies that aren't other than Huawei or Huawei, sorry, Cobalt companies that aren't household names to anybody involved in the uh, in the battery industry so uh, a lot of players who uh, these guys are all involved in other industries stepping into where they see opportunities in lfp but i was just mentioning uh, that list from the mitt uh, of the 300 and odd uh, cars that will be authorized to on chinese roads the predominant mm-hmm. the, 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 the number of electric vehicles there the the predominant chemistry in the electric vehicles is uh nmc our ternary type uh, chemistry announced for china which i found very uh bucking the trend or slightly shocking yeah, that, that, uh, that is most of the cars are ternary based so you know if you're a, a a chinese ev startup the premium technical innovative battery is going to have to be a ternary based just to and a marketing and, and a performance spec, you know, just against Western yeah. suppliers. So quite interesting that it looks like all the cars coming on in the market in the next three years will be NMC based. But um, that's interesting. Uh, I wonder if maybe that's a little bit backward looking, if uh, maybe they haven't sort of uh, quite sort of turned around to what the current market market is looking like and the, the direction of the market. Well, if you're a startup, then you have to NMC, right? Because a lot of startups actually for premium and Neo's a premium car, Ideal yeah. Auto premium car. Uh, so premium are historically, anyway speaking, NMC based. Mass market, which China you think these guys would, the mass market is more or less addressed by the established Chinese auto yeah. The yeah. legacy OEMs anyway. Just to let you know, uh, the predominant amount of new models coming around will be NMC based. Okay, good to know, good to know. So uh, let's move on to something which is exercising quite a lot of minds at the moment, which is the chip shortage. Scary. Uh, I think that's going to be quite concerning. We're obviously hearing about a lot of idled capacity, GM, Toyota in the third quarter. Potentially, that could have a big impact on volumes in the EV space because Q4 is historically the strongest period for, for EV sales, certainly in China and to some extent in other That's markets right, yeah. as well. So 
Do you think that that's likely to sort of pull in volumes a little bit this year? I mean, I noticed that European EV sales were down, were quite a lot weaker in July. Do we think that that was the first impacts of the chip shortage and we might see more in China in the fourth quarter? I, I think so. We've already seen uh, XPeng, I believe, uh, slow our, our stall production due to chip shortages in June, July. And uh, I believe Tesla also had the same issues in China. So we're already seeing an effect on the numbers. Like, yeah, so the uh, EV production sale uh, were more or less stagnant going June, July in China. Um, so mm. already seeing effects now during the summer. And you're right, the Q4 is the big push on the sales in China for the new year. Yeah. So, I mean, just um, to highlight, it's been a great year and it's on course to still be a record year. It's just that if yeah. we got that Q4 strength, it would knock the ball out of the park, basically. Uh, yeah, like June, July was uh, about 200,000 EV uh, registrations. Slightly lower, actually, in, in July than June. I haven't got the August numbers in yet, but uh, yeah, there wasn't much growth over the summer. And some of that was due to chip shortages uh, for the uh, established OEMs and the Chinese startups also. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And and then not strictly a, a Chinese issue. Well, really not a, at all a Chinese issue. But we should mention the issues that General Motors has been having with its bolt batteries over the last uh, little while. Um, big, big recall. And it looks like being LG Chem, LG Energy Solutions, which is being taken out of the back to the woodshed this time around. And it's not the first time either. Big embarrassment factor for both GM and LG, and also big logistical challenge for GM to recall that number of vehicles and replace the batteries. And it does highlight again how important purity of raw materials and intermediate materials that goes into these batteries is. I mean, we haven't got to the bottom of why these fires are, are happening. Realistically, it's going to have something to do with, with the purity of the raw materials themselves. LG don't seem to be able to put a battery in anything without it going on fire. So it's <laughs> always LG. <laughs> Large-scale energy storage, the home energy storage in the REC-EU with Hyundai and with uh, GM now as well. And so they're the recurring factor in it. It might not be down to just the purity of raw materials as we, you know, a number of their competitors source the materials from the uh, same suppliers. So yeah. um, it's likely to be, I mean, I've heard uh, separators cited. Uh, I've obviously heard cathode issues cited. So it could be any one of a number of reasons. But, uh, you know, the fact is that both organizations had to take very substantial write downs. And it's a big smack in the face, really, for, for both organizations. Uh, I mean, the whole point about electric vehicles is, is reliability. And if you're having to, to recall 70,000 units, that's not a great situation. I think yeah. GM have been a pains to point out that these vehicles are not using the new Ultium battery technology and battery architecture. These are still using the old batteries. So some bright point, but still very expensive to, to have to recall and refit these, these units. Yeah, yeah, it's... Uh... It's getting pretty uh, damning for uh, LG Chem at this stage. Again, uh, I mean, neck and neck with Tesla uh, had a, a very interesting uh, study out uh, last month, and they they were comparing the number of 
battery fires and fires in ICEs. And, and their study very much clearly found out that uh, battery fires are considerably less common than fires are in combustion engine vehicles. But of course, you know, whenever the press sees or hears of a battery fire, uh, it's all over the front page of the uh, of the papers and the websites, whereas, you know, um, ITE fires, however common, aren't front page news. Yeah. What was the numbers? Uh, tens per 100,000, something like that, right? Uh, I, yeah. really started, I remember one of the, I think last year did something similar. But, yeah. uh, you know, battery fires are a lot more dangerous than uh, ICE fires, right? They yeah, because they burn. It takes four days for them to go out. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> you think you got it out and it's back on again. It's, you know, connected to your home. A lot scarier. And yeah. uh, it's dangerous for all, all involved firefighters. So, and the only thing I, I got against people who cite low numbers is that we're expecting, uh, we got really low uh, battery EV penetration right now, right? It's, uh, mm-hmm. Globally, I, I don't know, it was a 3%, something like that. I don't get the numbers. It depends on mind, the Mind you, there, there is a market. There's a story there for long duration batteries that use non-flammable uh, you know, maybe we should go for our long duration batteries for our homes and everything. Then we don't have to yeah, you just put the battery on wheels. and uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, there's uh, solutions coming. Uh, I'm sure LG, the ultimate uh, battery, you know, from description, uh, sounds fantastic. Maybe that will solve uh, the issues uh, for GM and uh, both GM and LG Camp. But, uh, yeah. Okay. And I, I guess we should also flag this month. A little bit of a slowdown in terms of small battery demand, so consumer battery demand, um, signs that demand is slowing in China. Handset demand for mobile phones is down a little bit. So just to, just to flag that that side of the industry may be slowing as well. You know, some battery producers are still specializing in the consumer products rather than the EV side of the industry. So just to flag that that's, that could be moving into a, a bit of a cyclical slowdown. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, is that a lot of people have had time in their hands stuck at home buying electronics online? or Because um, it's really affected the price of uh, cobalt, right? Uh, over yeah. the last number of months, it's months, sorry. It's uh, stagnant or slightly dropped even, depending on what well, chemical or metal. I think it's probably the, obviously, people were, were moving into work from home at the beginning of the pandemic, and that really pushed up demand for you know, laptops and um, wearables and stuff like that. And then obviously, laterally power tools because people weren't able to get out. So they were doing lots of DIY and stuff. And now maybe that's abating to some extent. People are going back out to restaurants. Need to do as much DIY and, you know, starting to go back to the office. So final point really from, from me in terms of sort of the lithium market, the raw material market, uh, interesting data point from IGO regarding the new uh, Quinana refinery in um, Western Australia this month, and just saying that it produced first lithium hydroxide. Uh, huge excitement in the Australian press, but obviously yeah. just a flag. Could be 12 to 18 months before they're up to full production of battery-grade hydroxide. So this is first hydroxide. Um, battery grade hydroxide will probably take another three months. Uh, then yeah. it's got to go through qualification with end users, six to nine months. 
So realistically, you're not talking about any substantial volumes of battery grade hydroxide back in next year, and it won't be up full production until the following year. So, you know, just to highlight that that is the development trail of a hydroxide plant. And if you if you look at that example in Western Australia and times it by 20 in China, the amount of uh, conversion plants that are going on at the moment, you can perhaps get an idea for why there is such a shortage of lithium in the market at the moment, despite the fact there's lots of uh, converters that started up over lots of yeah, well, yeah, it could serve as a blueprint for uh, other uh, suppliers uh, in Australia, right? Domestic production, lithium hydroxide, move further up the uh, supply chain. It is exciting to see that, again, you know, I remember when this was announced to already uh, successfully producing first batch, you know, it seems like it was a short enough time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I, I don't don't get me wrong. I, I'm excited, but uh, I just want to caution that it takes a long time before these plants sure. come into to full operation. You know, we have a situation in China at the moment where you know you can't beg, borrow, or steal lithium units, and um, you know that's not going to change anytime soon. So we've got the second Pilbara Minerals auction actually will take place while this podcast is in production. So fingers crossed um, we, we get a good price off the back of that as well. How much uh, material have they to auction? Is it more than uh, I don't 10, think it's a lot. I think it's maybe a five or 10,000 ton oh, okay. uh, batch. So it's, yeah. not, it's not a lot. So, um, you know, the, the fact that we're seeing that sort of ultra high prices for, for what are quite small batches of material really does highlight how scarce lithium is in China at the moment. Yeah. We're expecting some uh, more capacity to be available, right, uh, back end of September. Everyone's banking on the, uh, the Q4, right, to uh, restock, reproduce, or, uh, uh, convert, and supply. But they're banking on there's going to be available capacity at the end of September, uh, Chinese converters, I know that. Well, yeah, I mean, good luck with getting the raw materials for that. Uh, I mean, there are no material startups in Western Australia this year. The Wajina startup, nobody's even talked about that yet. Um, the Mineral Resources Albemarle Project, primarily due to labor restrictions in, in Western Australia. I think that Pilbara Minerals are going to restart the old Altura asset towards the end of this year, but you won't probably see material volumes until the beginning of next year. Mariam maxed out in terms of capacity. Uh, Mount Catlin maxed out in terms of capacity. And uh, Greenbushes will probably start stockpiling material ahead of the hydroxide ramp up. So I don't think you're going to see, you know, material additional capacity coming out of there. So yes, I can't see any any material supply increases out of Western Australia until probably the first half of next year. There's been a lot of capacity announcements in the Qinghai region in China, right? Uh, Lake Lithium mm-hmm. and others. Um, yeah, have, uh, are there any these projects real? Are they going to really be able to domestically supply in China? What do you think? Well, I think that, I mean, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think there have been a number of DLE project announcements, direct lithium extraction. Now, I think we're all very 
excited and very hopeful about DLE. But the problem is it's not a one-size-fits-all solution. So it's each extraction methodology has to be tailored for the specific resource. So, you know, just because you have something that works for one project does not mean it works for another project. And it's still very... um, it's still a very complex solution. So, you know, fingers crossed these guys can make some lithium, but it's nowhere near going to be enough to supply the sort of demand growth we see coming through next year. Yeah. Well, that's what I was... In, in Latin America that are coming yeah. through. So so the Atacama expansions are coming through. But, uh, you know, a lot of that material is not battery grade. So it needs to be further upgraded to battery grade and you're going to have recovery impact. So... There is material coming on, but is is not as much as we're going to need. I was uh, reading the BMR earlier, and uh, you go into detail about where the investment is going to come for particularly lithium projects. I'm just wondering, does DLE further muddy the waters? Like, why would I invest in a brine project, a hard rod project, when there's going to be millions of tons of lithium chemicals coming out of the Rhine Valley uh, from uh, geothermal sources. And well, I, I think for some people it does. But for those of us who are pretty close to the industry, it doesn't. I, I mean, I, I've been involved with the mining and chemicals industry for 20 years. You know, they've been talking about DLE for the last six or seven years. It hasn't been commercially successful. In fact, the, the the furthest along commercial project in the world is the Standard Lithium Project in uh, in Arkansas in the US, and that seems to be going well. And you know, fingers crossed, it is going well. But I mean, speaking to to a lot of the guys who are working on some of these uh, geothermal lithium projects, it's more complex than than it seems to be. And uh, you know, there hasn't been widespread reservoir testing of these of these assets and there's no proof at this stage that they can actually produce commercial amounts of battery grade lithium carbonate and lithium hydroxide from geothermal sources it's proved that they can produce battery grade carbonate yeah. but at a bench scale at a lab scale chemically you can do it yeah you can do it but but whether you can do it on a commercial scale. And, you know, a lot of these, I think one of the things that a lot of people forget is that a lot of these geothermal assets, these reserves, or I'm going to call them resources actually, are a long way underground. And, you know, having to drill uh, half a kilometer, a kilometer, two kilometers underground is a torturous process. And a lot of things can go wrong. And a lot of these geothermal drill holes get very delayed because there are issues with drilling, that can really impact your ability and your timing in terms of, of lithium extraction. So, you know, I hope, I very much hope that a lot of these geothermal projects do come through, but yeah. there is a much greater risk about success than a lot of investors are currently attributing to them. Gotcha. And if, if DLE, you know, magically overnight, could fulfill the promise, where would that leave Brian and hard rock producers? I think it still leaves them in play because, you know, there's strong demand. I mean, I've I've got the Californian geothermal projects. I've got a little bit from the German geothermal projects, from the Arkansas project in my model. 
and I've still okay. got a substantial supply and demand deficit in the last five years of this decade. Yes. So yeah. we still need more investment in supply. Yeah, yeah. Even geothermal DLE projects do come online that we've been reading. I've been reading about there in your model. Uh, still nowhere near to what's required, right? So The point about these geothermal projects is potentially they can be upscaled fast and, you know, fingers crossed. But at the moment, nothing's been commercially proven. So prove it to us commercially and uh, then we'll be a, a lot more excited. But at the moment, I remain really, really concerned that there's not going to be enough lithium even to hit my electric vehicle forecast for 27, 2030. And, uh, you, you know, that's a real, it's a real worry. That's what I always, with the current drive and prices, how are we going to maintain the uh, downward momentum of sell pricing? What do you think? Are we going to hit? The- well, I, I mean, that, that really is the question, isn't it? And, um, you know, I, I'm thinking increasingly that I do believe that electric sell prices are likely to rise because of the huge increase in raw material prices we're starting to see. And if that's the case, then how are we going to get to those mass market volumes in terms of EVs? And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking we're going to have to see some sort of change in ownership. So obviously, we talked about earlier, we talked a little bit about credit, about leasing. But in, yeah. increasingly, I think maybe we have to look at something like battery leasing. So, you know, the OEM effectively leases the battery within the vehicle to the owner and then takes it back at the end of its life. And and that ticks a lot of boxes because that means that the OEM has full control over the battery for the whole length of its lifetime, which then allows them to either choose whether to put it into second life or to recycling. Potentially, a, a spent EV battery could have a residual value of probably five to $10,000 in terms of the raw materials in it. Uh, and, and, you know, as raw material prices go up, that'll only increase. So, you know, there's going to be quite a substantial residual value in electric vehicles that you don't find in ICEs. And obviously, by leasing the battery, rather than selling the battery to the owner, you're yeah. potentially lowering the upfront cross considerably. So I think we're going to see different behavior in terms of, of ownership of electric vehicles going forward. This is the exact same as uh, Neo's uh, battery as a service model that they have uh, introduced for the last exactly. few years. Exactly. And I mean, I, you know, a lot of people sort of sniff at that model, but it might very well be, you know, the shape of things to come. Yeah. You mentioned uh, over uh, 70% of their sales are involved the battery as a service model in China, obviously. And, um, and the upfront cost is as low as $10,000 cheaper if you don't take the battery pack and, yeah. and lease it. But uh, over time, you pay back the $10,000 in the BAS as service. But uh, what you do get is a new battery every time you you hook your car up. And even after 10 years, you won't have a 10-year-old battery or seven years, actually more of the cycle for uh, EV batteries. When you drive in on the seventh year, you're going to get a, a battery pack which just manufactured this year or last year. So you'll always be driving a new battery pack, which is yeah. comforting to the, uh, the buyers. And also, uh, I noticed, so EV uh, or Neo have a number of these packs on their books now. And now they're 
they're almost like a metal supply company. They're saying we have over 2,000 tons of nickel under our care because this is what's in circulation and what they'll yeah. get back and several hundred tons of cobalt, you know. So as you said, that at the end of the day, they might second life these batteries. And after that, they'll have thousands of tons of raw materials. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm not suggesting that everybody goes into swapping. I mean, that would require a very material re-engineering. But just if you, you know, if the, if the OEM takes the view that actually they control the battery, they own the battery and they're leasing the battery to you in the vehicle, um, that may be a way of getting around the very significantly higher cost of energy. But uh, anyway, I, I think that everything's on the table at the moment, but I do worry that if the cost of batteries goes too high, it's going to nix the EV story too early on. Well, I think if the squeeze happens, uh, we'll be forced to innovate. Maybe we'll see the sodium ion that CL discussed. Maybe we we'll, won't see um, too much lithium ion going into energy storage. We'll see the iron air battery that Form Energy had. You know, so yeah. if the squeeze happens, I think we'll be innovative enough to uh, address it. Fingers you know? crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, on that positive note, let's uh, call it a day. And I will say um, thanks very much to Cormac. And uh, look forward to speaking to you next month. Yeah, I'll talk to you soon, Matt. All the best. Thanks for having me. So that brings us to the end of our podcast for September. You can get more detail on any of the topics we've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge. Thanks for listening.